Hey guys, this is Dwayne K. Sutton, and you're listening to The Entrepreneur Inside. The podcast that goes inside the minds of the world's greatest entrepreneurs so that we can teach you how to awaken your creative soul and bring your ideas to life. Hey guys, this is Dwayne K. Sutton. In this episode, we go inside of the mind of the man who brought us some of music's biggest hits, Tony Mercedes. First, you're going to learn how Tony took $2,300, yes, $2,300, and started a true independent record company, a record company, by the way, that earned $15 million in revenue in its first eight months. Tony pulls back the curtain and gives us a peek into how a small record company from Augusta, Georgia, sold over 500,000 copies of his first record in the world's toughest market, New York. That story alone would make a bestseller. It is creativity and deal-making at its best. But that's not all. He walks us step-by-step through the process of bringing the Grammy Award-winning and mega-hit No Scrubs to market. You will get an unprecedented look at how this one record launched the careers of a lot of familiar names. I've known Tony personally and professionally for over 20 years, and I happen to be married to his sister. Well enough said. Ladies and gentlemen, Tony Mercedes. So, Tony, we are very fortunate to have thousands of people listening to this podcast, and many of them are young folk who are eager to, you know, blaze their own trail, much like you were in Augusta, Georgia. So what one thing would you tell them in a young Tony Mercedes about this thing we call the music business? I would tell that person, if I had a chance to go back and advise or give somebody some great advice, to uh, never let one person or one person's ideas or thoughts define who you are and where you can go in this business. Mm. Uh, that that would be, you know, for me, that was one of the things that allowed me to be able to make some of the movies that I made was because I, uh, although I appreciate, you know, constructive criticism and I appreciate advice and I appreciate somebody's opinion, I do realize it's just that one person, just that individual's opinion, but it doesn't define where I can go and who I am and what my success ratio would be. It's not based on that. So, you know, believe in yourself. You know, stand firm to your commitment and, uh, and stay true to the game. See, that's great advice. In fact, I remember you going before industry executives with this dream of bringing your first record to market. So tell us about that journey. You know, like any young person, you want to meet with as many people as you can meet. Uh, I had two very important, uh, crucial meetings. Number one, the first meeting I had was with James Brown, the godfather of soul in Augusta, Georgia. And I sat down with Mr. Brown and I said, uh, Mr. Brown, I'm thinking about starting a record company and here's my music, here's my artist. And it's really, I remember it like it was yesterday. He stopped me and says, he said, you can forget that son. They ain't getting ready to let no Negro have no record company. Mm. And, and I took that really hard. I'm like, wow, uh, you know, this is the Godfather. So, you know, it, it, it has to be the gospel. But, but I said, you know, I'm going to try one more thing. So there was a conference called Jack the Rapper. I didn't have enough money to get in, so I hung around and hung around until I could actually sneak in. And I went to that conference, and by the time I got to the, the panel that they had called Track of New Stars, I realized that they had already uh, ceased with allowing people to submit their music to be listened to. Well, being the kind of entrepreneur that I am, uh, with a whole bunch of street sets, I've seen a whole bunch of CDs on the table with, with numbers attached to them, so... You know, like any other good Samaritan, I picked up one of the CDs off the table. I threw that one in the trash and took their number and put it on my CD and dropped it on the table. I mean, uh, 
that was, I mean, that's, that's the gospel, and that's really what happened. So at that point when it was time for them to preview my record, uh, uh, it was Daisy Dukes at that time, and I played the record. And, uh, you know, there were three, there were six people on a panel. Three of them happened to be presidents of major record, record labels during the course of their careers. Uh, without going into detail, I remember one of the, those three that, that would be presidents of major labels asked the person who had this record to stand up. And that was me. And they said, well, these are the type of records that we try to tell people not to do because they're regional records and the record will probably never leave the state of Florida. Now, mind you, at that point, I'd never even been in the state of Florida. I was from Georgia. Uh, and at that point, after dealing with, hearing what James Brown said and then hearing what these industry experts said, there's no way I could be in the record business because I had two major players tell me that that, that my music is garbage and, and black people can't have no record label. Well, I realized one thing that, uh, that, that they didn't realize was, you know, I was smart enough to test that record in a little club called Club Mercedes that I had in Augusta, Georgia. And I told myself that they heard the record, they, they saw the presentation, but they never saw the response that, that those young kids in Augusta gave me when that record came on. And from that point, you know, I, uh, I, made, I made the decision to go ahead and pursue, you know, starting my own record label and, and go ahead and pursue putting that record out with, Little to no money at all. I mean, I really had no money. I borrowed $800 from my father, and my ex-wife gave me 1500 you know, uh, all of me before I stopped. More of the story, don't let your ex-wife invest in your business because you will pay. But anyway, <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it was one of the smartest things that I did because we were able to turn that $2,300 on a record that people said would never leave the state of Florida. And we turned it into $15 million in gross receipts. The record stayed on the bill. We're charged for over 56 consecutive weeks. And, uh, you know, it was uh, it, it was the, the turning point of my career. How so, Tony? Well, because had I taken the advice of those who, who I respected and those who I looked up to and admired for their contributions to music, then I wouldn't be sitting here today because I'd, I'd work at Walmart or, or somewhere that doesn't require you to have a college education, so, um, gotcha. and that's just reality, so, but a lot of things happened during that time, too, I mean, there's a lot of things that happened, I started selling the records out of my car, I sold about 40,000 records out of the trunk, literally, wow. I didn't understand what UPS dropship was, so I would drive to you know, each different city and drop off my records, and, you know, um, you know, sell 100 records here at this store, 100 CDs at this store, blah, 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 and, um, you know, one thing led to another. But then I wound up getting a call uh, from, from a guy named Al Bell who owned a company called Belmont Records, and he used to be a, the, pro, the previous president of uh, Stax Records. So, yeah, uh, he, he offered me a distribution deal with no money, and um, I, and I accepted the deal verbally. I would say probably within a week I got a call from Jerry Greenberg, who at that point was Michael Jackson's attorney and, and a, a top executive for Sony. And... Uh, Sony made it very clear that they wanted to be in business with Tony Mercedes. Right. And um, they wanted Sony wanted to offer me three hundred fifty thousand dollars to uh, to get the rights to the uh, to the album. Now the problem with that is, had they offered me fifty thousand, I would have said yes. 
but they offered me 350000 And at that point, I realized that these folks must know something I don't know because they have a lot of money, and, they, and they're offering me a lot of money. There's something that's not right about it. Not that it wasn't a great deal, because it was a great deal, but when I turned it down, everybody thought I was an idiot, you know, including the ex-wife and the mother-in-law and everybody else said, you're stupid, you should take the money, blah, 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 blah. But the reality is, had I taken that money, I would have lost my identity, because it would have never been a Tony Mercedes record release. It would have been a, uh, a Sony release, and I wouldn't have been able to brand the company and you know and everything else. So you know when you look at you know when you look at everything and you make decisions, sometimes it shouldn't always work down to a dollar, but up to a standard. You know what I mean? And, and that standard is trying to market and promote your company and brand your company because once it, once it becomes a universal or Warner Brothers release, then your company kind of gets lost in the, in the, in the shuffle. You know? wow. so, um, so let's dive into this a little deeper. So here you are, a true independent record company with no marketing budget. And still you have to find a way to make it all happen. And that meant going to places that just didn't want you or your music. Well, like New York. And as we all know, if you don't get New York, at least at some point, you won't be as successful as you can be. So how did you get New York to start listening to your music? Well, you know, during, during the, the early 90s, um, what they call our music was like Miami-based music or party music. Right. It was, you know, it was in New York, you know, they would call us country. You know, mm. don't play country. And they didn't even recognize it as being uh, a hip hop art form. It was country music. So after the record did really well in the South, I, you know, I tried to get the record made in New York, and uh, they turned me down and said, "Hey, man, we don't play that kind of music here." And so I said, "Okay." Um, I said, "Well, can you point me in a direction of where you know uh, the sales department?" You guys, said, yeah, you know. Go down the hallway, second door on the left. I asked the salesperson, I said, you know, can anybody uh, help me with buying some advertising? And they said, well, you know, what kind of budget do you have? I said, I want to spend $10,000. And they said, perfect. You know, just uh, give us your, your copy, and uh, we'll write it up, and we'll get it done. I said, I can do that right now. He said, okay, I'm ready. I said, take this record right here, play it for 57 seconds. <clears throat> and in the last three seconds, just say available in store now. And they said, excuse me? Yeah. Brilliant. Play this record, 57 seconds, and available in store now. Back then, they had BDS, which is Broadcast Data Systems, which kind of let you know when your record was getting played on a big station that had that, that you know was affiliated affiliated with BDS. So I knew I would get the, the BDS detection, but I was also but as a backup, I had about 30 cousins out of New York, and I said 30 cousins and friends. I said, listen, every time you hear this record. Call this radio station and say, "Can you play that record again?" Every time you hear this commercial. Right. So, you know, one thing led to another. Two weeks after my advertising campaign ran, the uh, BLS added the record. About another week or so after that, Kiss added the record, and I was I wound up being able to sell about five hundred forty thousand records in New York alone, just in New York alone. Wow. Incredible. And you did this all as a true independent record company. By the way, explain to everyone what a record label is. See, we hear all of the time, especially for hip hop artists, that they have a label deal of some sort, right? So what exactly is that? So when you define label, label has to imply ownership. It okay. has to imply skin of the game. It has to imply uh, having a vested interest in the intellectual properties. So when you look at companies like Bad Boy and companies like Def Jam and companies like um, Social Def, 
they're not really record labels. They're glorified production deals. Ah, and the reason okay. I say that is because if you, if you ask Jermaine Dupree how much of the Criss Cross album uh, record does he own, he's going to tell you uh, zero. He has zero percent interest in the intellectual property, although it's distributed by Sony, and so so Sony owns it. You know, Jermaine has a glorified production deal that is painted on as a, as a as a as an actual record label, but it's not. Which is no disrespect to him, because those are the kind of deals that we all cut back in the day. And but you know, once you understand what it is, you realize that. You know, because even some of my older records, if if I was ever to do the best Tony Mercedes, I would have to go to Sony, I would have to go to Arista, I'd have to go to Columbia and uh, MCA and a host of others and say, will you give me permission to use my own record that I created? <laughs> right. There's something wrong with that. Yeah, definitely. So There's something wrong with that. So I realized that um, it was time for me to, instead of being a sharecropper, to be a shareholder. Mm. So I, I kind of switched the game up and... Um, and that's when I kind of coined that phrase. It's time for me to get out of the music business and get into the business of music. Right, I remember. So at this point, Daisy Dukes and Tony Mercedes Records had seen tremendous success. As I remember, you were approached by a large number of people looking for help. So tell us about that time. Um, after the success of Daisy Dukes, I, uh, I got involved with uh, the 69 Boys Tootsie Roll Records because the company that had it, um, they didn't really have the the, uh, the wherewithals to monitor airplay and things of that nature. So I would give um, them their weekly radio radio spin list and the BDS detection list so they could kind of keep abreast of where they were with the record. But of course, you know, uh, Tootsie Roll went on to be a really big record and um, that kind of uh, helped um, them kind of gets, gets situated. And I also did the same thing with Tag Team. I wound up bringing Tag Team over to Belmark Records and help facilitate and orchestrate that deal. And they sold in excess of about 6 million records. That was Whoop, There It Is. Yeah, yeah. huge record. Whoop, There It Is. Very big record. Um, the only problematic record I had was a record called Donkey Butt, which was out of Augusta, and I happened to live in Augusta at that point. And I tried to get the guy who had the record. His name was Robert Flash Gordon. Oh, yeah, I remember that And guy. he would yeah. not. Yeah, he owned a uh, company called Pyramid Music. He wouldn't give me the record. And um, so I wound up having to uh, <clears throat> cut a deal with a guy named David Mishery out of L.A. And I said, David, look, call this guy. Call this number. Tell him who you are. Tell him you're from California. And I'm quite sure he'll do the record with you because, you know, uh, Flash was uh, an older gentleman and, I figured a, a white voice from California probably was all the ingredients needed to get that deal done. So after he signed, uh, <clears throat> after Flash signed the deal with uh, David Mishry, um, he was really surprised when he saw the credits come out and said executive producer Tony Mercedes. So I'd like to be, <laughs> I would love to be a fly on the wall when he saw that one. So you ended up, you know, having this success with Daisy Dukes and you helped out a bunch of other folk like Tag Team and with their record, Whoop, There It Is, and a bunch of others. So how did you end up at LaFace Records? By the way, uh, for those who don't know, LaFace Records is the label that launched Usher, Pink, Outkast, Tony Braxton, and TLC, just to name a few. Uh, it was founded by L.A. Reid and Babyface. And so anyway, Tony, you ended up at LaFace. How did that happen? Well, I ended up at LaFace Records after uh, doing a series of, of pretty good and phenomenally successful records. Um, 
by way of having some internal problems inside of my own financial um, situation, one of my my accountants, uh, uh, I guess I use the word misappropriated the majority of my funds, and I went to sleep with you know six, seven figures in the bank, and woke up with zero. So um, that's kind of how that story turned out. Even though it was unintentional, it was just the way it played out, and um, you know, so I found myself with literally about $400 in my account. And uh, I remember meeting L.A. Reid on the plane, headed to Los Angeles to talk to Al Bell about my statements and the royalties. And L.A. Reid and I had a conversation. He invited me to come to LaFace. And I came to LaFace and sat down with the general manager and the uh, COO. And I remember L.A. popping his head in the room and just telling them, you know, make sure you guys get the deal done. So the offer that they made me was so low. Now, mind you, I only had $400 in my checking account. And here, you know, I've got $7 square foot house and, and, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of bills. So they made me an offer that was so low. As bad as I needed the money, um, I stood up and said, I said, I remember saying, I want to shake you guys' hands. And then I want to pretend like we didn't have this meeting so I could have the same level of respect for the face records I had before I got into this meeting. Oh, wow. Uh, and I walked out. Now, I'm broke as a joke right now. I'm, <laughs> I'm broke as a dick, man. I'm broke. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. um, but I had to put my poker face on and I had to walk away from, you know, an offer that I thought was just too low for a guy with the achievements that I had. And... um which, you know, the average person would have been really happy, but I just, I'm like, I put a bigger value on myself, you know, so. Did they come back with a better offer? They came back and tripled the offer and oh. gave me the perks and, uh, uh, you know, and I got a red convertible Mercedes out of the deal, you know. So, <laughs> um, you know, I guess this, uh, I guess my, my, I guess I was a poker player before I actually knew how to play the game of poker. Right. You know. But it was a win-win for everybody because I, I brought them some big records. And, um, you know, it, and I was a solid investment. I mean, you know, solid investment. So, uh, One of the records you are famous for bringing to the market is No Scrubs by TLC, the best-selling female group of all time. So how did that record come about? I had an artist named JT Money um, back in the signs of LaFace in about 97, 98. Um, and, I, you know, JT, I was, I was a big fan of JT. He used to be over with Luke, uh, Luke Skywalker, you know, Luke Records. Right. He had a called Shake With Your Mama Gigs back in the day. It was in a slew of other records. So JT had really never broken a barrier. And I told Jason, look, and stick with me, man, and we, uh, we're going to make some we're gonna make some money together. And I remember uh, taking him to Shakespeare, who was up in, uh, up, no, I'm sorry, to... Um, Tricky, Tricky Stewart. Oh, right. Okay. Who, who, who was a producer out of Atlanta, and he had done some stuff, and he was he was up and coming on the way. And I remember sitting down with him and Shakespeare, and I said, "Listen, you guys stick with me. I'm gonna make sure you have. You know, I'm, I'm gonna get you two number one records." And they all thought that was a joke. So, getting back to the JT story, so we had uh, LaFace had a retreat in the Bahamas at the Atlantis Hotel. And probably three weeks before the retreat, the the the, the um the event in um in Bah in the Bahamas, 
L.A. had decided that he was going to drop JT money from the label. Mm. So, you know, we had to um, had to retreat and um, everybody's playing some music. So I put on the Who That record. I just cut it. And the crowd went effing insane. I mean, it's like it blew everybody away. They were like, oh, my God. So uh, L.A. came to me and said, well, whose record is that? I said, well, it would have been ours, but you dropped JT from the label. He says, who, you, didn't you play it for, 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 for KP? I said, yeah, I played it for KP, but KP didn't think the record was a hit, so he turned it down, you know, and that was the end of it. So I remember L.A. coming to me saying that, you know, we got to figure out how we can get this record on TLC. I'm like, L.A., come on, that's not, it's not a TLC record. And he talked about my career and how you know this has been a major move for my career to take the money from take the record from JT and and cut it on TLC. And I explained to him that I can't take the record from this man and you know take his shot of 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 being you know resurrected or being relevant again. And I can't look that man in the face if I just take his record or convince him to give me the record. So I think Ellie got a little upset with me and uh, told me to go sit down with Dallas Austin and figure out how we could get TLCs on the record. So I meet with Dallas Austin and Dallas Austin is like, man, bump LA, man. Let's go take, I got to deal with Capital over here with Roy Lott. Let's do deal over with Capital. You can do it with my free world brand. So I did the record with, with Capital and, you know, it was a big record. Ellie got really upset and I said, LA, listen, I'll find a TLC record, man. Give me, give me a minute. I'll, I'll go grab, I'll find a record. Trust me. Two weeks later, <clears throat> I'm passing uh, Shakespeare's Shakespeare's in a studio with, with Candy and Tiny from the group Escape. Right. So they, they're cutting this record called No Scrubs. So I pass the record. I'm like, yo, whose record is that? So Candy says, well, no, it's me and Tiny's record. I said, well, she said, we're starting a new group called Cat, K-A-T, Candy and Tiny. And I explained to him, I said, listen, here's the, here's the, here's the reality. The reality is you guys are both still on the contract with So So Death. As the as escape. Number two, this record is bigger than any group called Candy and Tiny. I said the third part of the equation is you need a guy like me to go broker this record and get TLC a cut the record. And they both said there's no way TLC TLC is not going to cut this record. They're not going to do no record that we send them. Blah 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 blah. And I'm like, listen, ladies, let me deal with that. Let me take the record <laughs> and make it happen. So. Instead of me going to T-Bars or Left Eye or even LaFace, I, I, I called Chili. I said, listen, Chili, you've been playing the back for a long time, honey, and I think I got the perfect record that's going to bring you up to the front where you rightfully belong. Um, I said, yeah, you're really pretty, but you've been, you, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you like glorified background singer. You know, so I said, I got the record for you. So I played the record for her in Dallas, and they were sold on it. Next thing you know, you know, we in the studio, we cutting it, and, you know, Tiana's a little upset because she's like, I mean, I'm not doing background. I'm like, gee, please, I just, you know, do me a solid. Just do the background. I mean, just do the background on, on the record. And, uh, you know, she, she wound up doing the, you know, doing the background. And, you know, it, it, it kind of was the beginning of our, of our relationship in terms of, you know, being real cool. And, you know, uh, next thing I know, I, I, instead of me bringing the record to the face immediately, I just started bumping the record out of my office. People kept saying, well, who is that? You know, and blah, blah, blah. And like, so I remember L.A. Reid and Reed coming to me saying, well, I like the record, but who's the producer? I said, L.A., what difference does it make who the producer is? I said, either it's a smash or it's not a smash. Right. Well, he says, well, um, you know, we only have A-list producers on the album. I said, yes, yeah, so let's see how far. And I said, but how far did that get you? 
look at the, look at look at the first. You put out a record called Silly Ho as as TLC's first single, America's Group. You put out a record called Silly Ho. Really? That's what we're doing now. <laughs> wow. So I said, give the record a shot. I closed the deal. We negotiated. It's not going to be an expensive deal, but I think it's a it's a bona fide smash record for TLC. Well, the rest is history. Right. Um, the record went on to be the biggest record of their career, I believe. And, um, it, it skyrocketed their album, fan, you know, fan mail to, 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 to incredible numbers. And it became, a, 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 you know, one of those reaction records, you know, those epic uh, classics, you know. And won some Grammy Awards, too. And it got four Grammy, nom- four Grammy nominations. We, we took two Grammys on. Wow. You know, and, and you know, here it is, you know, Shakespeare, who never really released a record in his career. Brand new artist, never done, never had any record release. You know, you got a brand new, two two writers, Canyon Tiny, who were, you know, new to the game in terms of writing, you know. But it gave all of them the opportunity to see the, how the other side of the business works. Right. They all became millionaires based on that record. You know, I was joking, tell people. If it wasn't for Tony Mercedes, Candy wouldn't be on the Atlanta Housewives. Of course, that's a joke because Candy got a lot of style and, and you know, she's she's a winner, but you know, um, this really this put the push that I gave her on, you know, selling TLC on the record was was a breakthrough for her career. Also, you helped break Kevin Briggs or Shakespeare. He went on to produce a lot of big hits for Destiny's Child, as I remember. Yeah, he, he went on. Him and Candy were like the dynamic duo, you know, and they went on to do uh, Bills, Bills, Bills. I believe it was one of the records for, for Destiny's Child and. And a few other records, they started working with uh, with everybody, you know, Mariah, everybody. I mean, it was they went on a, on a, on a serious run, and uh, they made a lot of money, you know. But the smartest thing I was able to do was to make sure I carved me out a piece of the music publishing, you know what I mean? So I figured if they didn't do the right thing in terms of letting people know that Tony is the reason we got this record and Tony changed our lives, blah blah blah. At least when you look at the credits, you'll realize that Tony Mercedes' music was. The, the force behind it, and that was why it was important for me to negotiate that deal for myself. Right, no doubt. You have made a transition into the world of television and film now. So, how did that happen? Well, what I did was I left Atlanta, I think, in 2004, and moved to LA because um, I wanted to make the transition from radio and record to film and TV. Because I really looked at, at at the marketplace and I realized that music was on a decrease. Because, you know, the internet was a blessing, but it was a curse as well, you know, um, and it's, it all really started back in the days when uh, a little company called MTV was smart enough to convince record labels to give them free content. Um, right. The videos, yeah. And which was in the form of videos and um, people started being able to see the artists and, it, you know, that, 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 that free content was one of the things that would turn MTV into a billion dollar enterprise and some of the labels that gave some of that free, free uh, content were, you know, have just closed the doors because, you know, they weren't smart to understand that they should have had a piece of um, the, the, the revenue, a revenue share from MTV, but they, all they thought about was free publicity, but they didn't, they never thought that, you know, uh, MTV would grow into the, the monster that it is. Wow. Now, MTV in Europe, the labels participate in the income revenue streams. They just don't do it in America. 
that was really the that, that was really the, the, the beginning of the demise of of uh of record sales and, and music in the United States. They oh, they overexported the artists via uh music videos. So it cut down on touring, cut down a lot of things because now it wasn't so special because I could turn on my T V and see this group perform every day on video. So now it it, it they're the the woo appeal the, the woe appeal for them coming to your city had, had somewhat declined a bit based on like I said the overexportation of, of the artists on on music videos. Um, that along with um, you know digital downloads things of that nature you know music became um, uh, easier to 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 obtain for free. I remember telling people that it made no sense for me to spend a couple hundred thousand dollars making an album when my son could could download it, bootleg it stuff for a dollar an album and still make a profit. Right. You know, so you know it, it it just wasn't there anymore. You know, it just wasn't there anymore. So, so that led you into television and film, right? Yeah, yeah, that led me into saying, you know, I thought that that was the next flow of money for 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 African American entrepreneurs like myself. Right. So when I started doing some production on, on, on a couple of movies, my first wasn't big, but for me, you know, I had a couple of C and D listers in, but I was I was smart enough to call Matthew Knowles and say, hey, man, I got an opportunity for Destiny Style to be in this movie. Uh, it's called Beverly Hills, which is the worst movie in the world, but it was still my movie, you know. Um, I was one of the producers on the show. But what it did do, um, it allowed me to have bragging rights to say, literally, I gave Beyonce her first movie opportunity. Right. Okay. Um, and I had Kelly Rowland and Latavia Latoya, all of all all the Destiny Child Childs in, in this movie called Beverly Hood. Um, but I was such a Beyonce fan and a Destiny Child fan and a respecter of Matthew Knowles. When I saw how raggedy the movie was, I really wouldn't let anybody capitalize off the fact that this was Beyonce's first movie. That's why you never really heard of it because to me it was more important to protect her brand. The brand of Destiny's Child and to exploit it for my own personal gain. So, you know, it, it was it would probably be a decade before we started really trying to see if we could put it back out in the marketplace because I needed to protect the integrity of where I thought the girls were going and where they did wind up going, you know, far far better than where I thought they would go. So, um, so that was important. Wow. Um, then you know, then I went on to do a movie called uh, Love Chronicles with. Uh, you know, Mike Epps, Rockman, Rockman Dunbar, Jessica Fox, um, Clifton Powell, and a few other people, you know. Um, and, you know, I started, you know, opened up a company called First Family Films, which did urban Christian content. I did a, a, a documentary called um, <clears throat> Every Soldier Counts that questions whether women have the right to preach biblically or not. And you know, that went on to to be discussed and, and sold for 10 years straight. I mean, in two, from 2007, it still continues itself to this day. Right. Um, and uh but here recently in 2016 uh um my son came home and told me about a uh asked me how I ever heard of Charlie Charlie Challenge and I didn't know what that was um and after doing the research I'm like wow this would be a great movie so I wound up writing a script uh you know along with some other people and you know doing some rewrites blah 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 <laughs> and I wind up you know um you know producing writing um Casting and really putting this film together, my, my whole self, you know, you know, along with Glenn Plummer, who happened to be one of my groomsmen in my wedding, and an actor himself as well as Mars Callahan, they all lent a hand, 
came in and dealt with the direction. And, you know, we just literally on, on yesterday, um, I uh, did final sound design mix for the sound, and the movie sounds incredible. I think it's going to be a great uh, team movie. Uh, I have a great cast. I have uh, Tom Sizemore. Um, I have Eric Roberts. I have Glenn Plummer in the movie. I have Noel Gubianamo. Uh, and a whole brand new cast of, of up and comings, you know, Tori Hill, Rick Morami, um, uh, Jasmine Holm. Now, there's one other person that you gave her first on screen appearance, and that is Soraya McNeil. She is now on television, the hit show uh, Empire. She was also featured in Taylor Swift's Bad Blood video, and she's now a part of Taylor's crew, if you will. So tell us about that. I, I call her Little Princess because that's what she is to me. Um, but yes, yeah, Soraya, she uh, she plays um, uh, Tiana. Is it Tatiana? Tiana. 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 She plays Tiana on Empire. Right. And um, you know, if you ever get a chance, and it's really funny. You know, my son I saw a video on him when he was ten. A song called uh, "I Need You" by a group called the Dutta Boys. And if you look in that video, uh, you will see. Uh, Tiana, Miss Empire, uh, dancing. She's a background dancer in the video, so it tells right. you how, uh, how incredible life can be sometimes. After Charlie, 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 so what's happening next for you? Um, well, you know, I'm going to be exploring other opportunities. I'm actually writing a new uh, horror film right now. Um, it's called Scare B&B, um, and it's... Uh, it's, it's going to be a really interesting movie about four um, college graduates from UCLA. So, yeah, I'm doing that. I'm also got a, a script called Benny that I'll be doing uh, probably in 2017, which is centers around a 16-year-old autistic kid from the hood. The things that he has to deal with on a daily basis for, you know, between sex, drugs, and violence and being able to survive inside of uh, the school system that bullies him because he's a little slow. You realize at the end of the film, uh, he was a, uh, a literary genius in terms of his writing ability. Wow. Um, but yes, about an autistic kid. And the reason I only put, uh, only have him saying two words whenever he asked, he asked him a question, he says the same thing, which is, yup, I, and that's what he says. Um, the only reason I did that was because I really want a kid who has autism to play the role of the kid that has autism. I want to keep it as organic as possible, and I want to, trace, to stay true to the art form. So I wanted to make it as easy as I could because I really want to be able to let people know this because a you know, kid has autism. Don't think that that's the, the, a death sentence in terms of being able to be fully functional as a citizen because, you know, mm -hmm. autistic kids are, we don't know how smart they are. We, we only know that they may have difficulty transferring that information, but we don't really know what's in the head of an autistic. You know, and also, you know, I'm a politician, so I look at the political aspect of being able to open up an opportunity for, for a person who Hollywood would never give that opportunity. Now, one surprising aspect of your life is becoming a world-class poker player. Tell us about that journey. Um, I was laying in bed one night with my wife, um, and watched ESPN was on, and they had the World Series of Poker. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I started watching, and every night I would always watch the World Series of Poker because I didn't know how to play poker, but it was just really interesting watching the money flow and just the technique and the swagger that people had to have playing poker. And I realized that um, I'm like, I can do that. So, you know, my wife would sit up, and she literally taught me how to play poker. And 
Uh, little did she know I would I would go on to playing at home games in in, in L.A. and then I would you know then I won my first tournament at Hollywood Park Casino and went on went on from there for kept going on blah 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 playing in different spots. So one day I said, you know what, honey, I'm going to play in the World Series of Poker. And she said, well, let's go. So, you know, I remember it was last year at WSOP. Got into the World Series of Poker. They had a field of about 4,300. Actually, it was 4,193 to be exact players. And uh, that's my first year playing in the first big tournament in the WSOP. Uh, I finished in the top 2%. Wow. And it was an incredible story because everybody was like, first of all, I, you know, like, who is this dude? Where did he come from? And then, you know, that was Tony Mercedes. He's a music guy. So they did a big spread on me at, at WSOP.com. If you just Google Tony Mercedes, you'll see that. So, you know, then, you know, this year I go back to play, and it was a field of about 4,500 people, 4,500 people this year. And um, <clears throat> as soon as I get there, you know, boom, they're giving, they're giving people stats on how I'm doing. So I didn't do as good as I did last year, but I did finish top 10%. Uh, on my second year, so I cashed both years, and I had finished two percent out of forty-five hundred, then ten percent out of two percent out of forty-two hundred, and then ten percent out of forty-five hundred. You know, those that means that's not that's not luck, that's a skill set. And right. They realize it now. I sat down and played with people like Don Cheeto, you know, Daniel Negrano, you know, David Benjamin. You know, I mean, all these people you see on TV, you know, are friends of mine now. So as we close here, how can people get in contact with you, Tony? No, hey, I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. Um, uh, I'm always accessible. You can reach me on Twitter at Tony Mercedes. You can reach me on Facebook, Tony Mercedes. Uh, or you can reach me at Bank of America, but I can't get all that information because <laughs> it doesn't sound, sound like a sellout to me. Tony, man, thanks for the time. Dwayne, thanks a lot for everything, dog. I'll holler at you.